0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We're fielding a lot of questions about how to talk to kids after the Texas school shooting. But parents, before that conversation can begin...
1: You need to take time to talk to people in your circle, to talk to your significant other, your friends, your colleagues about how scared you are. Do that before you talk to your kids and then ground yourself in the facts.
0: Then, exceptional and monumental, that's how a constitutional law professor describes a $14 million jury verdict in favor of Denver protesters, why it could set a precedent in and out of court. And later, a very dry interview with Denver 7 meteorologist Mike Nelson. Dry because that's how summer's going to be.
2: I think the main story by the time we get to July and August is going to be a lot more heat than it's going to be strong storms, hail and flooding.
1: Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for
3: bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Honestly, where does a parent even begin? That's one of the questions we got about how to talk to kids or how to let them talk to you in the wake of the Texas shooting. It is just the latest attack on a school in the U.S. stretching back to Columbine in 1999. This is a phenomenon that now spans generations. From Children's Hospital, Jenna Glover is a child and adolescent psychologist And joins us, Dr. Glover, welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This shooting comes as kids are still coping with the pandemic, the effects of remote learning and isolation. How would you describe children's mental health right now, first off?
1: You know, it's the worst it's been in my 15-year career. And I think kids are dealing with more than we have ever seen youth have to deal with at once, um, really compressed into a two-year period. So the amount of disruption that has happened in children's life with added stressors on top of that, of constant change, and then these mass shootings that come into play, the the lack of stability and overall stress has just been devastating to youth mental health.
0: You know, I take some comfort in having someone simply acknowledge that it's really hard right now. I can imagine that being maybe reassuring to a kid to say, you know what, you got it really bad right now, kiddo.
1: I think one of the most important messages that we can tell kids is how incredibly difficult their lives have become because of these obstacles. And, you know, growing up, I remember my parents often saying, oh, you know, when I was a kid. But the reality is when we were kids as parents, we didn't have these same things that these kids have to deal with. And we certainly didn't have the amount of visibility and connection that these kids have to this information. Mm -hmm. And so really, there are just more stressors and more awareness 24 hours a day of these dangers for our kids that, that we never had to deal with growing up. So I think it's important to say to kids, it is incredibly hard right now. You have a lot to be stressed out about and you have a lot to feel sad and grieve about.
0: Joanna Hernandez asks, I want to protect my toddler for as long as I can. At what age is it appropriate to talk to children about gun violence?
1: This is such a great question. You know, I'm a parent of a two year old and a four year old and often wonder about these things. In general, our recommendation is that really young children don't need to be told about these events with the caveat that if a child hears about these things, so they're sitting in the background playing and the news is on, they might hear some of this. If they ask questions, do address it and be direct with young children you know, something terrible happened, somebody hurt other people, and we feel sad about that. But we're here to keep you safe. In general, though, if these young children aren't hearing about that and keeping them away from the news, there's no need to bring it up with them. Mm. However, when you start getting to young school-age children, it's incredibly important to talk to them about this because it's likely they are hearing about it on the news or from their friends. And when we don't address things that kids are hearing about that are scary it increases their fear that something must be terribly wrong if my parents aren't talking to me about this. So I would say that young children, first graders, second graders, it is okay to have these conversations, but doing it in a direct way that provides very simple information and reassurance is important. And then certainly as children get older, it's incredibly important to have these conversations with your kids.
0: You said something there, which is that, but we'll keep you safe. Is that a lie?
1: You know, it's a lot of parents right now feel like it is. And it's hard for a lot of parents to tell their children school is safe because they don't feel like it is. And so, one of the the things I tell parents is you need to take time to talk to people in your circle, to talk to your significant other, your friends, your colleagues about your fears and get that out and process that.
0: As an adult, among adults.
1: As an adult. As an adult, among adults. Because there's going to be a range of reaction and you have to talk about how scared you are. Do that before you talk to your kids, and then ground yourself in the facts. Because even though this seems like it is happening all the time everywhere, and it is happening way too much, the reality is the probability of a school shooting happening to your child is incredibly unlikely. So even though it's a possibility, it is highly improbable. And I know that is a hard thing for parents to hear right now, because it doesn't feel that way. But the facts do suggest that. And so it is important to remind our kids that, by and large, schools are actually a very safe place to be. Now, there's still work that needs to be done to make schools safer. There's still things that we can be doing, but it is important to take time to process the fears and then ground yourself on the facts so you can reassure your kids with those facts.
0: Carrie asks something similar to this, Doctor. How do you hold space for their grief, that is the kids' grief, while managing your own? I mean, I, I had trouble getting out of bed this morning.
1: I think a lot of times as parents, we think that we have to mute our responses in order to be present for our children. And really, I, I think it's both. You have to take space to actually talk about this stuff with other people, because, you know, as a, as a parent last night, like I shed tears. I was so angry. I was so upset. Hmm. And that's a place that I, I need to be able to go. And other parents need to be able to go and people to talk about these things. But it might not be helpful to our children to express our full range of anger and fear, So being able to take some time to do that with another adult first, then you can show up and authentically share your concerns with your child, but in a way that is authentic and won't overwhelm them.
0: I guess to that first question, where does a parent even begin? Uh, I do suppose that depends on a child's age.
1: It absolutely depends on a kid's age. And one of the things they tell parents is it doesn't really matter where you begin or how you begin. What matters is that you do begin Hmm. because a lot of times we want to avoid these conversations because they're hard. We don't want to do it incorrectly and we don't want to make it worse. In general, know that just stumbling through and opening the conversation. So again, with a very young child, it could be as simple as giving them the facts. Somebody hurt people, that makes us sad. And we're going to talk about how we stay safe as a family. All the way up to an adolescent who it just should be an open dialogue what have you heard about this how are you feeling about this and what questions do you have about it
0: what questions do you have about it i appreciate that because one listener says on twitter i think letting kids talk to you uh, and answering their questions is more important than talking at them after the news breaks um several parents have mentioned active shooter drills meaning, of course, Texas isn't the first that kids are acquainted with this whole topic. On Twitter, one parent tells us they have no questions, quote, just exhaustion from teaching my 13, 12, and 9-year-olds how to look for egress points, barricade doors, and properly shatter windows to evacuate if there's an active shooter. I think for most of us parents, it's simply holding a breath daily and expecting it to happen at any time. What do we know about the cost-benefit of preparing kids but exposing them to drills?
1: Yeah, this is a really, really interesting topic, and there's a lot of different thoughts and feelings about this. In general, it is helpful and important for students to go through safety procedures and drills in the rare event that something might happen because it arms them with information of, this is what we can do if the worst possible happens. Uh And that for many children can give them a sense of security, that there is a plan, that there are steps I can take. Again, balancing that with, it's highly unlikely that we will ever need to evacuate because of a shooter or a fire. And if we did, this is what we would do. However, we don't want to overemphasize that. So doing these procedures occasionally having these conversations occasionally and addressing them when these things come up is important, but also it's important to take breaks from this. One of the ways that some of us cope is we want to constantly consume anything and everything about this in a sense to try to understand it mm-hmm. and what is happening, but it's so important to take breaks and, and turn off the TV, turn off the social media and just be present with your family engage in regular routine, and have time to connect in a positive activity. So it's really a balancing game. Some exposure is helpful. Overexposure is dangerous.
0: Do you think schools have struck a good balance when it comes to the drills?
1: You know, I I think there's so much variability depending on the school district Mm -hmm. um, and the individual school. I think schools are tasked with an impossible list of things that they are required to do for students. So I think, by and large, Schools are doing the very best that they can with this. And I do think it varies school by school, but I I do think schools are doing the best they can to have regular drills, but not to invoke too much fear in our children about these possible shootings.
0: Denver Public Schools contacted families Wednesday saying there'd be an increased police presence in and around schools. I can imagine that being reassuring to some kids, but frightening for others given what law enforcement represents in various communities. W- would you say a few words about that?
1: So I, I think you're exactly right. For some people, this will be uh, reassuring, and for others, it will be frightening. One of the things I encourage parents, especially as your children are older ages, so older children into adolescents, always take your children's temperature before reassuring or giving them information. And by that, I mean, this thing is happening. How do you feel about that? What do you know about that? And open the door for them to share their perspective first. So you have a jumping off point. You want your child to direct the conversation in terms of their needs. And so open-ended questions that allow them to do that is the place to start. So just simply, there's going to be more police at your school. How do you feel about that? What questions do you have about that? And then you can respond when you know where your kid is at.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's like, read the room, Mom. Read the room, Dad. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly.
1: And a lot of times we assume that we know what our kids are scared of or what they're thinking, and and most of the time, we don't.
0: What are signs that parents might look for in the coming days and weeks that indicate their kiddo needs
2: help?
1: So a couple of important things to look for, um, I would say, over the next two weeks. First of all, any changes in diet or sleep um, that last more than two or three days are going to be notable concerns. Also noticing a change in mood. So two things that you wanna look for in youth that are hallmarks of potential mental health concerns are withdraw. It's normal for kids to withdraw a little bit from their parents at different times, but if they're withdrawing from friends or other things, that would be a cause for concern. And then also increased irritability. So if it seems like your kid just goes off very easily and stays angry longer than it makes sense for the situation. Um, and again, you're seeing that for three, four five days over a two week period. Those are some of the things that would be concerning. And then I would also be aware of how often is your kid, if they do have social media on those platforms, um, has it increased? Hmm. What are they posting about and asking them about that? Because depending on what they're looking at, that can also increase risk factors for kids.
0: Well, is this a moment to limit screen
1: time? Yes, it's a, it's a perfect moment to limit screen time for adults and for kids. Oh, um, I like, again, I'm like. i going is... to
0: pause you there. For adults <laughs> and for kids. Okay, keep going.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, the medicine that's good for your kids is the medicine that's good for you when it comes to this. This is a horrific thing that has happened, and it's important to be informed. But too much information and too much exposure to this just increases our stress levels, just bathes our body in unnecessary hormones that are going to break down our resilience. So taking breaks as a family, taking breaks as an individual is incredibly important. And just connecting to the, just being in the present moment and being grateful for the things you do have is an important way to get through these experiences.
4: How
0: do you build resilience in kids?
1: So, um, there are kind of three foundational things that I say that are essential for resilience um, in youth. So the, the first is it's what's good for your physical and your mental health is getting them consistent sleep and consistent diet. So making sure that those foundational things, we, we know that when kids aren't sleeping well or eating well, their ability to regulate their emotions really goes out the door. So making sure that there's a real emphasis on that is the first thing. The second thing is making sure that they're taking time to engage in positive activities so that there's a chance to have some fun during a day, to have some gratitude, some joy during a day. And these can be very small things, but getting outside is a really helpful part of that. Mm. But despite really difficult things, we know that increasing positive emotions builds up that tank. And so when these stressful events draw down on that, there's stuff in the tank to, to draw from. And then the the third thing that is incredibly helpful is just consistency and routine. And so when these things happen, they shock our sense of safety and they disrupt our sense of normality. And so one of the things we can help recalibrate our system is through those routines. Is through let let's get up at the same time. Let's make sure that we're eating. And this is a really important one because most kids are about to go into summer. Right. And where routines go out the door, I would really encourage parents to think about what's your summer routine. And have one um, because kids actually do need a sense of routine, and that's going to help them moving into the next two weeks. And a lot of times we just throw that out the door, but I wouldn't do that at this point. Um, I would keep with those routines. I would check in with your kids, and just make sure those basic needs are getting met right now.
0: Okay. Before we wrap up, how you doing? Me. Yeah. I, there's no, is there anyone? Yeah, is there anyone yeah. else on the line? I think yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah there's me. You know I. Um, I, this is a devastating conversation to have um, as a parent and as a therapist. I've, I've had to do more of these talks than I ever wanted to do. And I, I just want parents to know you're not alone. This is an incredibly scary time. Um, you need to have people to support you and you need to be able to support your kids um, and they need a place to talk to. So I think it's important that we all acknowledge we've been through a really hard time there's a lot of grief and there's a lot of loss. Um, And I know that I need to do a lot to take care of my mental health and that's connecting with others. And I hope that the listeners out there are doing the same to take care of themselves, because we've all been going through some really hard things. And if we don't take care of ourselves, I'm worried about these things continuing to happen.
0: Jenna, Dr. Glover, thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you so much for having this conversation.
0: Dr. Jenna Glover is a child and adolescent psychologist with Children's Hospital Colorado. Children's has a tip sheet for how to talk to kids about upsetting news, and we've tweeted it at Colorado Matters. A final tip this one comes from Betsy Baxendale, who suggests the wisdom of Mr. Rogers at a time like this, namely his song, What to Do with the Mad That You Feel.
5: What do you do with the mad that you feel when you feel so mad you could bite? When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right. What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag? Or see how fast you go? It's great to be able This
0: to is speak. Colorado Matters from CPR News.
3: Members of the Colorado National Guard are in the Baltics right now, training to work with NATO allies. It's a tense time, with the Russian border not far off and war raging in Ukraine. So along with practicing coordination and logistics, part of the mission is just
5: reassurance. You think you're worried, what if you were Estonian? What message would it send to our partners if we said, oh, you know, things in the world are tough right now, we're not coming.
3: I'm CPR's Caitlin Kim, and I've traveled to Estonia to see the guards roll firsthand. You can find all my reporting at CPR.org.
0: Life in Colorado is a lesson in weather extremes. Last weekend's spring snowstorm sent temperatures plummeting 50 degrees in less than a day. And just as quickly, the snow pounded, trees toppled. And then we returned to dry, windy conditions. Let's get some perspective in our regular conversation about weather and climate with Denver 7 chief meteorologist Mike Nelson. This time, we travel to his office which is a curtained-off section of the news studio. Well, Mike Nelson, thanks for welcoming us into your weather lair. Welcome to the uh, (laughs) inner sanctum. I'll ask you about some of the equipment, the many screens that are flashing in front of us in a moment. But um, the old adage about Colorado weather is that if you don't like it, wait a couple of hours, it'll change. And my, was that the case last weekend? What stands out to you about that spring snowstorm?
2: The temperature drop, obviously, going from near 90 to sub-freezing temperatures within uh, 18 hours.
0: Had had you ever seen something like that before?
2: I have. Okay. Uh, I, back in the 90s, was at a Bronco game on a Sunday. It was 92 degrees. We woke up the next morning. It was in the teens. So I have seen that a few times. But it's been a while. Been a while. I mean, these happen every five or 10 years like our big snowstorms do.
0: What else stands out about that spring snowstorm?
2: It was a good wet snow. So we got some great moisture. Some of the mountain areas really got it. Sadly, not down around Pagosa Springs, where you have that big fire in the southwest. But it boosted our front-range snowpack pretty well, albeit temporarily. But we'll take any moisture we can get.
0: What did it do for other areas of the state? You talk
2: about Pagosa. Uh, didn't do much for the southwest also. The San Juans are still really dry. Same thing down in the uh, lower drainages down around Alamosa. And, uh, we got a good dose of snow for the eastern side. Didn't get much west of the divide, so it's not going to help fill Lake Powell. Which is, of course, part of the intricate Colorado
0: River network that we share with so many other states. A new analysis by NOAA this week looks pretty grim. Colorado and the Mountain West are headed into their third summer of extreme and exceptional drought. Do you see anything in this... uh, fancy Star Trek bridge of a weather center that indicates a break in that pattern? Monsoon is the word we often use? I
2: wish I did. Uh, We are still under the influence of a really persistent La Nina, and La Nina is the cold cousin of El Nino, which is the warm ocean water in the equatorial Pacific that tends to bring us a Bigger summer monsoon and a lot of our bigger individual snowstorms during the winter season. Uh, Unfortunately, La Nina makes the storm track tend to come from the Pacific Northwest, across the Rockies, and then out across the eastern United States. Those storms are drier. They they do pretty well for Summit County. They do pretty well for Steamboat in the wintertime. But a La Nina summer does not mean a cooler summer. It generally means a drier summer.
0: And a hotter summer?
2: With drier comes hotter. With
0: drier comes hotter. Extreme wind has been an issue really since the end of 2021. Uh, CPR's climate team just pulled this data. Colorado has had 42 high wind warnings so far this year and is on track to have the most warnings in more than a decade. What What is compounding the intense wind and is the worst behind us?
2: Yes, the worst is behind us, thankfully, because the wind is oftentimes... Uh accelerated fuel by the strong jet stream. So when we had that La Nina spring, that meant the jet stream up at about 30,000 feet was cranking pretty good from northwest to southeast across the central Rockies across Colorado. During the daytime, when you get some mixing in the atmosphere due to the heating of the sun, you'll bring some of that momentum down to the ground and we get the really gusty winds. We were actually feeling the jet stream a little lower than usual. Yes, indeed, indeed but in the summer the jet stream sort of feeds if you will off the north south temperature contrast and the areas that have the biggest contrast over a short distance will have the strongest winds so if you think about it, the jet stream's almost like the birds in that it migrates north and south with the temperature contrast so oh. by the time you get into later june and july think about it it's going to be 100 degrees in texas it's going to be 95 in north dakota you don't have much of a temperature contrast. Uh So the stronger jet stream has actually migrated up into southern or central Canada. It has left our domain. Yes. And so if we don't have those strong winds aloft, although you can get gusty conditions during the day, you won't get those days of just blasting winds that we've had. And yet, dry and hot are ingredients for wildfire. What are we in store for there? It's a self-fulfilling cycle, really. I mean, it adds up on itself because if you're dry then you're not gonna get the evaporation out of the soil to give you any precipitation, any cloud cover. And then you'll just get hotter because the sun is only heating up dry ground and dry air. Mm -hmm. And so there's nothing there that's going to bring you a real break in this pattern to get a good rain. Because La Nina summers don't favor a strong monsoon that comes out of Mexico, Arizona, New Mexico into Colorado, typically in July and August, I'm not real optimistic we're going to get a great monsoon this year. So we'll likely get some severe weather in June because it's June. But I think the main story, by the time we get to July and August, is going to be a lot more heat than it's going to be strong storms, hail and flooding.
0: We talk often in these conversations, Mike, about the difference between weather and climate. And it's not that Colorado hasn't been dry or hot before, but we have a larger force at play that is exacerbating things. Do you
2: think that's a proper way to frame this? Absolutely. Absolutely climate change, as the world gets warmer, it's making things more extreme. So droughts are getting drier. Heat waves are getting hotter. Tropical storm systems, hurricanes, typhoons are getting stronger. And when it rains, the floods are more severe.
0: You and I are sitting in a studio. Your weather office is tucked behind the news desk, the green screen that allows you to Point to the map is right behind you. But I've got one, two, three, four, five, six computer screens there. I see a bevy of clipboards, kind of old school weather maps, as I look a little further down this long, narrow space. What would you say is the indispensable piece of equipment here?
2: We would not do much of a broadcast on TV without the modern weather computer systems uh-huh. that we have. That uh, Actually, I was a big part of the development of those 40 years ago. Uh, I worked with a company that started one of the very first television weather computer called Weather Central in 1979, and it was based on an Apple II home computer. Oh, really? Very I... crude huh. by today's standards. I was picturing one of those giant rooms of computing. Well, the problem then was, yeah, we had those at universities. Uh-huh. But they filled a room and they cost millions of dollars. A TV station wasn't going to buy that. And so uh, the gentleman that was my mentor who hired me for my first job came up with this idea of, let's see if we can take some of that computer power and that programming and actually make it affordable. And so we made, by today's standards, a very crude display, very blocky, looked like Pac-Man or Space Invaders. (laughs) But it was a computer that did weather, and we sold them all over the country. I actually... When you say a computer that did weather, that means it tracked it or predicted it? It displayed. You could put a color display on TV of the cold fronts, the warm fronts, the rain, the snow. Okay. And so my job in the early 80s was to travel around the country and install these weather computers and train the people how to use them. I trained Al Roker on his first weather computer in 1981. Wow. Uh, And for the Colorado people... I trained Stormy Rotman on his first weather computer in 1982, brought the first computer to Denver.
4: Mostly 60s in the San Luis Valley, the Western Valleys in the 60s, pretty much tomorrow as they were today, and the Eastern Plains in the 70s, and even a few 80s. It reached 80 degrees.
0: Icons in television, meteorology. (laughs) Mike Nelson, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. It's always a pleasure, Ryan.
0: Denver 7 chief meteorologist Mike Nelson, he joins us once a month to talk about Colorado weather and climate. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a verdict that could change the course of civil protests in this country. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC. After more than two pandemic years, people are thrilled to be meeting friends and families in
2: person and often unmasked. But Colorado is seeing another COVID wave, expected to land hundreds more Coloradans in the hospital by mid-June. How can you reduce your risk of infection? Are there some venues to avoid? And if
0: your at-home COVID test comes up positive, what do you do? Find lots of tips
2: at CPR.org.
0: Our next guest believes a jury verdict in favor of Denver protesters will help rewrite the playbook for demonstrators nationwide. We heard from some of those protesters yesterday who took to the streets when police in Minneapolis murdered George Floyd. So now let's welcome Gloria Brown Marshall. She's a professor of constitutional law at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York, where she teaches courses on race and the law. Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you. This verdict follows a lawsuit from a dozen protesters who were injured by police pepper balls and flashbangs two years ago. This spring, jurors awarded them $14 million collectively. Uh, Denver was hardly the only city where protests took place that summer, but um, is this verdict in Denver truly exceptional?
3: It is exceptional. It is monumental. So few of these protest cases go to jury verdicts, and many of them are unsuccessful. And I think that this is really a game changer.
0: Exceptional, and uh, you cut out a bit there, but I think you said monumental. What have been the obstacles to jury verdicts like this in the past, uh, if you say they have not occurred uh, before this?
3: Many times when you have a class-action lawsuit, it can be difficult to find the ideal plaintiff. In a time period in which we had from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, this sense that the ideal plaintiff, the Rosa Parks-type plaintiff, is difficult to find. Somebody who doesn't have a criminal background, somebody who will be sympathetic to the jury— um, oftentimes that it is difficult to have a, a class action in which there are consistent issues across the class. The U.S. Supreme Court has made it difficult to actually have the class actions we've had in the past, and so it's difficult to even start off having the correct class, let alone getting through to that class, so to court. Because the motion to dismiss usually means that the class itself is dismissed early on before it can even get before a jury. So the case never actually gets into a courtroom.
0: Oh, This idea of the ideal plaintiff is fascinating. What do you think was different about Denver then?
3: I think Denver is, um, I, and a lot of lies, is different you have more of an integrated community in the protests in Denver. And unfortunately, um, you know, sometimes race and region does play, both of them play a part. The race does play a part, we know, in so many different instances in criminal justice as well as civil justice, but also the region plays a a, a part. Um, I think it might be seen, even though um, Colorado and Denver in particular has had its um, time period of racial segregation, it wasn't looked at as Alabama. It's not as, as restrictive and as, as cruel, as we could say, as New York City. Um, but there are many things, you know, that people can look at, at Denver, maybe seen as a more liberal part of the country. And that might have also played into the fact that it could get to a jury and that the jury would render such a verdict.
0: Mm. So the, the geography has something to do with this and the, the history of this place. So if this is precedent setting, is it precedent setting for other court cases? Is it precedent setting in so far as it changes police behavior? Like, what do you think the implications, the real world implications of this are?
3: The real world implications are threefold. One, yes, it is precedent setting, and therefore other jurisdictions are going to watch what's happening in this case. Many protest cases settle, and because they settle, we never get any clear direction from the case itself. And so there are uh, police misconduct cases, especially involving protesters, where different cities and even small towns are paying substantial amounts of their budget to settle these cases. But in settling them, there is no clear mandate for other jurisdictions. This case gives a clear mandate. Secondly, um, we, we have a sense that it's not, as I said, New York City. It's not the Deep South. And so it's sending a message around liberal communities that, yes, you can make police um, reform in your local communities, even if we can't get the national reform. But there are also been other types of, of you know, reforms taking place we may know nothing about. Yes, I wanted the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act um, to become law. However, I think there are reforms now in Denver that are taking place and in involving um, what police can and cannot do regarding their use of force policies that are, of course, the, clearly alive with this case and what happened there.
0: Yes, just for some context, there were changes in Denver, but there were also changes statewide with a police reform law that was passed after these protests um, that have to do with Police, for instance, reporting bad behavior that they see from other officers, this sort of duty to intervene. That's one of the big changes that grew out of this. Uh, Professor, I'm glad you mentioned settlements. You know, some of those are made public in court filings or city council meetings in Minneapolis The city settled for one and a half million dollars with someone who was shot by plastic projectiles and beaten. Uh, In Denver, we know about two settlements approved by city council in February. Uh, Those plaintiffs got several hundred thousand dollars each. Los Angeles is paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to a man hurt by a police projectile in 2020. And I do want to be clear that Denver officials are not accepting this 14 million dollar jury verdict they vow to appeal Uh, both the Denver Police Department by the way and the city attorney have declined to comment you you said that other jurisdictions would be watching this does that mean other courts as well so I, I know this is one decision in one part of the country but could it influence the case law
3: I think it can influence the case law because I've clerked for a state court judge as well as for a federal appellate court judge. And I know judges read the decisions, especially one that makes national news. And so it will influence. But I think the other influence would be among the people. Here's what I mean. Those are taxpayers' dollars going into those settlement um, agreements. Taxpayer money. Law enforcement is not paying for that. It's taxpayer money, and so I think the taxpayers are going to start demanding reform so that their tax money is not going into these settlements based on the behaviors of certain uh, police officers. Every police officer is not bad. I'm not saying that at all, but the bad apple, as you pointed out, has to be pointed out by the colleagues there within the police department, and law enforcement has to know even though they're not paying, the taxpayer is Tired of having to bear the brunt financially and otherwise, having the city tainted or the town tainted by a bad uh, police behavior is is something that the now the whole town has to live with. They're painted with the same brush. So the money, the the taint on the town, and the sense of moral obligation that this is not going to happen on our watch. I think these are the things that come out of these cases. And yes, it will change the hearts and minds of others, but also have judges across the country begin to think about how they can do things differently as well when it comes to these cases.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest uh, is constitutional law professor Gloria Brown Marshall of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. We are talking about Uh, what she calls an exceptional and monumental $14 million jury verdict in favor of Denver uh, protesters associated with those protests for racial justice and police reform. Uh, This was a verdict handed uh, down in Denver. All right, we know that police shootings haven't stopped. I think of uh, Patrick Loya and Grand Rapids this year. And yet we don't see the same protests uh, in the streets. Do you think uh, momentum has waned, Professor?
3: Protest is powerful. It's always been powerful. However, we have over 7,000 people dying at the hands of police since 2015. And think about the relatively few protests that are accompanying those deaths. So a protest doesn't happen all the time. You have to have a critical mass. Sometimes you have to have a certain type of of spark that, that occurs in that particular community. Some communities say enough is enough and we're not going to do it anymore. Watching the agonizing murder of George Floyd triggered protests not just in Minneapolis, but also around the world. So not every death has a video. Not every time do we have people in policing who are trying to hide the circumstances. The medical examiner, the, the um, prosecutor at the time, and many others tried to hide the cause of death that George Floyd had suffered a lynching there as opposed to what they deemed it to be natural causes. So a lot of circumstances and the time, human beings are so um, really so busy, so overwhelmed, And these are usually the most vulnerable people who are in these circumstances because the police usually attack the most vulnerable because they understand that they have fewer resources. And so that means that it's difficult for those communities to come forward and protest using time, money and effort to do so.
0: I mentioned the criminal justice reforms that passed in Colorado. Uh, also, new investigations were opened into the death in Aurora of Elijah McLean. I'll note that his mother, Shanine, was just in Washington, D.C., speaking with uh, members of the White House about potential federal reforms. Uh, there's no doubt the movement has changed some things. But before we go, Professor, what what is the next frontier legally here, do you think?
3: We must have national criminal justice reform. The next frontier legally, even though there are going to be appeals to this, continue lit- litigation, legislation, protest. That's my idea of the trifecta of social change. So we need national criminal justice reform. We need to make the prosecutors more responsible in making sure that people have their rights in court in criminal cases, and we have to have more attorneys who are willing to represent protesters in civil cases. Uh,
0: one last question, and that is, there are other cases similar to Denver's in the pipeline, are there not?
3: There there are other cases, but some of them are cases of re- where there are um, damage suits, and others are First Amendment cases. So you have an array of cases that are out there. Some are, are, are kidnapping cases. Some of them are cases in which the police have held people who are protesters against their will for many, many days. So there are a number of different legal issues in those cases, and all of those are going forward, and most of them, I'm sure, are watching Denver to see what happens.
0: Professor, I'm grateful for your time. Thanks for being so generous with it. Thank you. Constitutional Law Professor Gloria Brown Marshall of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York.
4: You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this.
0: There is still time to read our next pick for Turn the Page. It is the true story of a Colorado private investigator. The book is titled Tell Me Everything, Author Erica Krauss was assigned to one of the most important sexual assault cases in U.S. history. It tested the scope of Title IX, which prevents discrimination based on sex in education.
3: Up until this point, Title IX was really about jerseys and facilities and that kind of thing. It wasn't ever about sexual assault. Uh, This is the first ever college sexual assault Title IX case. And it changed law to say Title IX is not just about money and whose shoes are nicer. Title IX also applies to actual protection of women and whether or not they can have the same education as men if they are under threat of sexual assault.
0: Read Krause's book, then join me and the author in person the evening of June 10th at LitFest in Denver. Tickets are free. All the details are at cpr.org slash turn the page. So again, the book is Tell Me Everything by Erica Krauss. Get your copy and then join us. Here's that URL one more time, cpr.org slash turn the page. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
4: Once upon a time, Loveland was the heart of Colorado's thriving cherry industry. That began in the late 1800s, and by the 1900s, there were 10,000 acres planted in Montmorency and Morello sour cherries. Those orchards raked in millions in early 20th century dollars and gave jobs to nearly every local family. Cherry stands and canning factories popped up around town. In 1930, Loveland had its first cherry blossom festival. Mrs. A. V. Benson invented cherry cider about the same time, and soon the federal government was requisitioning Colorado cherries to feed the troops. But after a hard freeze in 1954 damaged and killed many trees, orchards were neglected. Cheaper fruit started coming in from out of state, and Colorado's cherry industry faded. But Loveland continues to celebrate this sweet chapter of its history every summer with a cherry pie festival. A Colorado Postcard from CPR, with support from Sheets and Giggles. It's Colorado Matters from CPR
0: News. I'm Ryan Warner. We talked earlier with Mike Nelson about the hot, dry summer ahead. But of course, it's not summer yet. And wildfires have already burned in Colorado and other western states. As climate change makes wildfire seasons longer and more intense... CPR's Joe Wirtz reports that federal agencies are again facing firefighting staffing shortages.
5: It's a Saturday, and Christina Stevens is making the rounds in a mountain neighborhood southwest of Denver. She's a volunteer wildfire coordinator who's checking on her neighbor's progress, clearing brush away from their homes.
1: And I ordered you the reflective address
5: sign, so. Patty Seitz and her husband have made a couple of big piles of branches. You know, you think you cut down a ton of scrub oak and you've done an amazing job, and then two years later, it looks exactly the same. So uh, it's just keeping up with it. It snowed up here in the Maxwell area a couple weeks ago, but there's no trace of it. It's hot, dry, and incredibly windy. The National Weather Service has warned of extreme wildfire conditions today. Forecasters have been issuing a lot of those warnings lately, 115 so far this year, and it's only May. As the Sices and other residents are preparing, wildfires are raging across Colorado and the West. The largest currently burning in the U.S. covers more than 400 square miles in New Mexico. At the same time, the federal government is once again struggling to hire and retain wildland firefighters.
1: I'm out. Uh, Yep, yesterday was my last day with the Forest Service.
5: That's Hillary Johnson. She joined the U.S. Forest Service in 2015 and worked her way up to become a smoke jumper based out of Montana. She worked the 416 fire near Durango in 2018 and fought complex wildfires in Alaska, California, and New Mexico. She spent her last day checking parachutes and helping the team prepare for the season. In a few days, she'll start a new job as a software developer.
1: I have been thinking about it, and I want just a better work-life balance for myself.
5: Johnson was making $16 an hour base pay as a smoke jumper. She was a seasonal employee, and like most seasonal forestry workers, she worked a lot of overtime to make the low pay worth it. And if I had a fire season, climate change is making longer and more intense. This is magnifying tensions that have been simmering among federal firefighters for years. Many are leaving for more predictable and better-paying local, state, or private firefighting jobs, or like Johnson, leaving the field completely. To slow turnover, the Biden administration approved one-time bonuses for firefighters last year. Congress also earmarked $600 million in pay raises and other reforms in the infrastructure bill signed by President Biden. But those raises?
1: None of it made it through to me. Um, As far as I know, none of that has taken effect yet.
2: Ranking Member Murkowski, Chief Moore, and our other colleagues.
5: Earlier this month, U.S. Forest Service Chief Randy Moore testified about the federal firefighter shortages.
2: Much has changed since we met here a year ago.
5: He told Oregon Senator Jeff Merkley that overall staffing levels had reached 90 percent of the agency's goals.
2: That 90 percent... Uh, it's a lot less than that in certain geographic locations. It's as low as 50% in some areas. All right, well, that's 50% sounds a little scary. We're um, thinking about the fires that we'll be facing in our various states.
5: Moore told senators the agency was also backfilling fire positions with other agency workers and contract firefighters. The Forest Service and Bureau of Land Management did not agree to interviews, but say the process is complex and they're working to enact the reforms and get federal funding into firefighter paychecks. They also say some of the hiring gaps will be closed when college students finish their terms and apply for summer firefighting jobs. Colorado's wildfire season is now 78 days longer than it was in the 1970s. Katrina Stevens, the volunteer coordinator, says she can see that conditions in her mountain neighborhood are getting more dangerous.
1: Pretty much everyone will agree that at some point this will burn. It's been well over 100 years since
3: it it had a real serious fire.
5: She and other residents are trimming trees further and further away from their homes. Some are even hesitating to start fires in their fireplaces. Stevens worries about understaffed and overworked federal fire crews. She lives on private land, but that doesn't matter much since it's all connected. Between her home and federal land, the ingredients for a wildfire are all right there. It's nothing but trees, drop-baked brush, and a whole lot of wind. Joe Wertz, CPR News.
0: Finally today, there is mutual admiration between two big names in Colorado music. The Lumineers and Gregory Allen Isakov covered each other's songs for a compilation. It's from Dual Tone Records, marking the label's 20th anniversary. Dual Tone, based in Nashville, has helped launch the careers of many Americana artists. Singer-songwriter Gregory Allen Isakov of Boulder County chose to do Salt in the Sea by Denver superstars, The Lumineers. So we'll first play a bit of the original and then let the cover take over.
4: you suffer all the disease you couldn't hide it hide it from me all alone scared in your room would you swear there's nobody home
5: on the bed lay
4: Hallo.
0: Isakoff calls the song's melody beautiful and says of his version, I hope we did it justice. Next, let's listen to the Lumineers cover Isakoff's Caves. Frontman Wesley Schultz saw Isaacoff perform the song at Red Rocks and was, quote, totally crushed in the best ways by it. As you'll hear, the Lumineers version is more tender and stripped down than Isakoff's original. ¶¶
4: the love
1: gaze. Stumble out into that big sky
5: Remember that bright hollow moon Showed our insides on our outsides
4: This town closes down the same time in your mind let's put all these words away let's put all
0: these words America kinder 20 years of dual tone that's our program for today this is colorado matters from cpr news and k r c c